October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number 27, Coming Together. Last time, we talked about the death of James White and the closing of Battle Creek College, and that's pretty much it. It was terrible. Moving on, Ellen White took the year after James's death to heal. She had to heal physically. She had been sick right alongside James and took months to get back on her feet. When she eventually did, it was so sudden that people called it a miracle. And of course, she had to heal emotionally, too. She busied herself in California, setting up the new Ellen White headquarters in Healdsburg. Her son Willie was in charge of setting up the new college there, and Ellen found Northern California as a peaceful, peaceful refuge. She set up a garden there, strawberries and beets, spinach and carrots. She bought animals. She mused that her horse was more interested in looking at the mountains than working, and that's kind of how Ellen looked at her time there, too. She was far away from Battle Creek. She didn't have to deal with the closing of Battle Creek College, except to write letters to Uriah Smith about it. She was anxious about that drama. And so, nearly a year after James's death, firmly rooted in the Napa Valley, surrounded by her Italian garden and so near her son Willie, Ellen White finally sat down to write. But she wasn't working on her novel. She worked on books that would come to be known as Acts of the Apostles and the Great Controversy, which together formed a sort of spiritual commentary on the New Testament and the history of the church through the ages until the Second Coming. But she also wrote fresh messages for the church. By August 1882, she had published the first 100 pages of what is now called Testimonies, Volume 5. Those pages were greatly appreciated. With the Battle Creek College mess and James's death, clear vision was needed in the church. So let's talk for a minute about these testimonies. When Ellen White wrote a testimony, it was something like a letter in the New Testament. Not that it was considered scripture or anything like that, but it had the same goal as Paul or Peter, to correct and encourage, to strengthen the church. They could be the result of a vision that Ellen received, or they could just be something she felt inspired to write. When she wrote enough of these testimonies, she would bundle them together and publish them. So, for instance, Ellen White included seven testimonies in these hundred pages we call Testimonies, Volume 5. The first was an address to ministers. Another was addressed to parents. All of them really were under the shadow of the Battle Creek mess. And when it came to ministers, perhaps also a little under the shadow of James White's death. She wrote, The old standard bearers are fainting and falling. Our young men have not been educated to feel their accountability to God. As a people, we are not advancing in spirituality as we near the end. end quote. The testimonies of Ellen White were a mix between drill sergeant, mom, and a cheerleader. In other words, a, a prophet. She was the general trying to get the troops ready for battle. The immediate battle was getting Battle Creek College into strategic alignment with the church. The church's mission was to warn people that Jesus was coming soon. 
So Ellen couldn't see the value of a college that existed just to train people to read Latin and appreciate Homer. The mission of the school didn't align with the mission of the church. Ellen had the remedy, the same remedy she had offered a decade before. In the word of God, General Ellen White told the troops, the mind finds subject for the deepest thought, the loftiest ambition. Here we may hold communion with patriarchs and prophets and listen to the voice of the eternal. She wanted the college to get away from the classics and focus on being a training school where the Bible would be a major textbook. She spelled it out. What she thought was wrong with the school. It was trying to be this hub of erudite classical learning, but also a workshop to form Adventist Christians. Ellen White had always favored the idea that the school should be practical. Students should work at the school to earn their keep while learning professional skills. And while the Bible shouldn't be the only textbook, every subject taught there should be rooted in the Bible so that the student is immersed in the Bible from multiple directions, from multiple disciplines. The reality is that the school hired a guy who didn't know how to do any of that, and so he did the erudite classical school thing with a few concessions to the religious element. The result, we found out, was that no one was happy. Now the school had closed, and Ellen White doubled down on her vision, urging the school's leaders to recognize that not taking her advice had, well, not worked out very well. She wrote, If morality and religion are to live in a school, it must be through a knowledge of God's word. Some may urge that if religious teaching is to be made prominent, our school will become unpopular, that those who are not of our faith will not patronize our college. Very well, then, let them go to other colleges, where they will find a system of education that suits their taste. Our school was established not merely to teach the sciences, but for the purpose of giving instruction in the great principles of God's word and in the practical duties of everyday life. This is the education so much needed at the present time, end quote. The problem facing the college was acute. I mean, if you want your college to succeed, don't you want to attract as many students as possible? Were there even enough Adventist students for the college to work? Ellen White didn't care. She didn't say that those erudite classical schools were evil, just that there were enough of them, and Adventists wouldn't get anywhere by starting one more of them. What was the point? How did it help the church accomplish its mission? The Adventist church wasn't called to take the same path as other schools. They needed a distinctly Adventist vision of education. For Ellen White, that meant focusing on the training of character, first and foremost. She saw an Adventist school system as a place where a young and immature Christian would go in and come out maturer and wiser. By all means, run the students through the intellectual gauntlet necessary to certify them for their profession. There were going to be no half-baked doctors or teachers who would never tell a lie but couldn't spell. But, well, I'll let her put it in her own words. Quote, Our college at Battle Creek is a place where the younger members of the Lord's family are to be trained according to God's plan of growth and development. If you lower the standard in order to secure popularity and increase of numbers, and then make this a cause of rejoicing, you show great blindness. If numbers were evidence of success, 
Satan might claim the preeminence, for in this world his followers are largely in the majority. It is the degree of moral power pervading the college that is a test of its prosperity. It is the virtue, intelligence, and piety of the people composing our churches, not their numbers, that should be a source of joy and thankfulness. You get the picture. This school's success isn't its endowment or its enrollment, but the quality of people it produces. She wanted people like Daniel, people who have the moral fiber to stand firm in whatever situation they're in. She wanted Adventist special forces. Things weren't all roses for Ellen White. New Adventists in Utah were besieged by critics. Many doubted that Ellen White was a prophet. Surprise! And so Ellen White moved to, once again, deal with these critics. The problem was compounded by the fact that Alexander McLearn, the head of Battle Creek College when it was shut down, left the church over the whole affair and joined the Marian Party. Remember them? Back in Iowa, in order to publish articles against the Seventh-day Adventist Church and Ellen White in particular. McLearn was upset over the school's closing and over his own low pay, which was, by the way, more than anyone else in the entire church made. And as we said last time, the whole McLearn debacle was such a debacle because prominent Adventists took sides, namely Uriah Smith. He sympathized with McLearn, even raising $50 for him after he was fired. McLearn naturally responded the next day by suing the Seventh-day Adventist Church for $2,000. And now that Ellen White's early writings were published, the group in Marion, Iowa, compared her earlier statements to things she said later, hunting for contradictions. The church at first ignored this stuff, as it usually did, but it raised real questions in a large number of Adventists, many of whom were seeing the things Ellen White wrote in the early days for the first time. And so the church had to respond yet again. Our good friend Walcott Little John fired the first salvo. You'll recall that he had been installed as pastor of Battle Creek Church and then as Battle Creek College after the school closed. Little John used the review to launch a careful study of the gift of prophecy in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, responding to criticisms and building up faith in the Adventist message. A few months later, in August of 1883, the church published an entire bonus issue of the review in order to answer objections raised by the people in Iowa. J.H. Wagner took the lead article and just got right to the point. He had read the articles of A.C. Long, who was an Adventist lawyer who left with Alexander McLearn in order to join the Marian Party. Wagner read those articles, and Wagner said, quote, He speaks in a confident manner, which, with some, may be considered evidence. Having been acquainted with these subjects many years, I am not prepared to assent to statements on the mere ground of plausibility. In most respects, Elder Long's professed argument lacks even plausibility, end quote. Well, tell us how you really feel, Wagner. He went on to take Long's claims point by point. Uriah Smith and Butler piled on too. Ellen White wrote a couple of weeks later, there are many who consider it a mark of intelligence to doubt. She acknowledged that people wanted her to write, to speak out, to defend herself. She refused. My answer, she said, 
is, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Critics have been hounding her for decades, and she knew that it was really a full-time job to answer every single objection, and at some point you just have to get stuff done. Nothing brought the church together like criticism from the outside, however, and to that, Adventists owe the Marian party something like a thank you, but not quite. While the church was returning fire on the pages of the press, the church was also pushing to reopen the college. Butler leveled with the members. The school hadn't done what it was designed to do, and in their desperation to force this classical college curriculum to work, they had hired Alexander McLearn to be the leader, even though he had barely been an Adventist. So, little surprise that he had left and become an enemy of the church. So this was an unprecedented disaster. Now that tempers have cooled over the last year and we can think about this some more, let's reopen the college for the fall 1883 term, okay? The General Conference session later on in 1883 affirmed not just the newly opened doors of the college, but the almost miraculous change of attitude of the Adventists in Battle Creek. People who had been on either side of the contentious college debate were now on the same committee working together, including Uriah Smith. At first, the church was rather nervous about whether the school would pan out, but by December they could safely call it a success. It opened with 80-something students, and it would be over 200 by the end of the first year. Not that, you know, the number of students was a measure of success or anything. Please don't yell at me, Ellen White. Speaking of Ellen White, she attended the 1883 General Conference session. It was her first time back in Battle Creek in two years, since James had died. It must have been surreal, but as you can expect from her, she didn't indulge herself in sentimental grief. And a portion of each general conference session was devoted to dealing with Adventist mission work overseas. Andrews was in Switzerland, Loughborough was in England. The work was spreading across Europe like wildfire. Loughborough, in the beginning, had been rather reluctant to go to England, admitting that it was hard to leave sunny California behind. But James White helped persuade him to go from sunny weather to English weather, and Loughborough thrived there as the church's missionary. Well, technically, he wasn't the church's missionary, because at first he only had ministerial credentials from the California conference, so he was really, as Brian Strayer notes, California's missionary to England. But whatever. He did his thing and pitched tents and held meetings. Angry ministers over there did their thing and spread rumors that Adventists were murderers. So, you know, the usual. Loughborough and his friends in England pioneered ship ministry, which meant boarding a ship and trying to sell tracts or books and, if possible, even putting a box of tracts or books on the ship to go to wherever the ship was heading. Given the size of the British Empire, the potential of this method was immense. One box arrived in Haiti where tracts were spread abroad. Two Jamaicans, as a result, became Adventists. And here's my shout-out to Jamaica, because 20% of that country are Adventist. So there you go, a box on a boat. Who knew that putting a box on a boat could do that much? And soon letters poured in from around the world, arriving at Loughborough's office, wanting more books, more tracts, and more languages... And in turn, he turned the screws on Battle Creek in order to supply these things. 
William Ng, Loughborough's partner, loved, loved, loved ship ministry. He boasted that he had boarded 339 ships and had only been tossed off one of them with his tracks. In three months, he gave out or sold 22,000 pages. And it makes sense if you think about it. You're at sea for months, might as well have something to read. If Joseph Bates were still around, he would have been proud. Loughborough found the going slower in England than in America. People just didn't make decisions about these kind of things as quickly. But one thing that really helped him was really the division between the Church of England and dissenting Christian groups like Methodists or Seventh-day Baptists. Doors were open to him to come speak to those groups who really wanted all the support and help that they could get. And Loughborough was happy to plug himself into English society as well. He joined the Vegetarian Society. Boy, doesn't that sound exciting. He actively aided in various temperance reform movements. His new friends in the shipping industry drew him into the Merchant Marine Association. He joined the Liverpool Conditional Immortality Society, which sounds like a hoot. Basically, you know, conditional immortality is the belief that people sleep when they die. They don't go to heaven or hell immediately, which Adventists, of course, believed in. And then there was a Salvation Army. And basically, I think that John Loughborough joined half of the societies in England, and he loved it. In 1881, shortly before James White died, John received word that J.N. Andrews was gravely ill in Switzerland. So John and Annie rushed to Andrews's bedside, and by rushed, I mean that they dutifully visited Paris and all of the sites they could along the way. Annie thought that Andrews definitely wouldn't make it, but they prayed for him, and then they headed back home to England. Arriving home, they received news that James White had died. So, man, just can't win on that trip. Loughborough tried to explain to his British colleagues what the death of James White meant, but they never knew him. They couldn't understand all that James had done. Realizing he couldn't rely upon American Adventists to send everything he needed, John had to learn to be self-sufficient. Wanting to encourage the English to eat better, he started selling health food. And the real hit was what would become known as bread gems. They really became all the rage. Loughborough couldn't make them fast enough, so he began selling the pans you needed in order to make them yourself. And even then, he couldn't sell them fast enough. So much was happening in Europe that the Avenists there also held a general European conference with 50 delegates. 50! I mean, they've only been at this a few years, and the church was already big enough to send 50 representatives from all over Europe to a conference. And the basic takeaway from that conference was the need to stop relying on America for everything. They needed to print their own papers and not use tracts, which they realized the Europeans really, really hated, and still do. It was all just common sense conclusions. Europe was something of a hotspot, too. It seems that a lot of the big-name people from America decided to come over and visit. In 1883, John Harvey Kellogg visited for some sort of medical research, but took the time to visit the new Adventists and encourage them. George Butler would arrive a few months later in his capacity as General Conference President to better understand what the challenges were there. And Butler inadvertently set a precedent for later years, where people wanting to be the General Conference President were expected to have some sort of experience overseas. 
It wouldn't be enough just to sit in America. You had to show that you could be president of the world, church. And so you were expected to make a tour and acquaint yourself with the work in various corners of the world. John Loughborough's five years in England were fruitful. Pastors back then were expected to keep detailed accounts of their days. And when Loughborough added up his days, it looked like this. In those five years... 49,140 families and ships were visited, which, by the way, if my math is right, that's about 27 visits every single day. He mailed 22,000 letters. There were 556 subscriptions to Signs of the Times and the Review. He sold nearly $3,000 worth of books and tracts, and there were another 100 new shiny Adventists, too. Loughborough had also managed to place dozens of copies of J.N. Andrews's History of the Sabbath in libraries across England. It was a good run, except there were a lot of people back home in America who weren't impressed, like Stephen Haskell. He considered the first ten years in England to be a complete failure. The church hadn't grown in England as quickly as it had in America or would in Australia. But Ellen White chastised Haskell. Be thankful, she told the church, when the work moves forward, whatever the pace. In 1883, the General Conference asked John Loughborough to come home. He would be replaced, but it would take two people to replace him. When he returned home, it wasn't long before the church received the news that J.N. Andrews had died in Switzerland. A telegram had arrived two days before an issue of the review, was meant to arrive in people's homes, and so Uriah Smith hurriedly rushed word into a tiny corner of that issue that Andrews had died. Andrews had been wrestling with tuberculosis for years in Europe, and really, the Andrews' life story is one of constant tragedy. He had had some kind of fling with Uriah Smith's sister, Annie, before she tragically died of tuberculosis at 27. Andrews' dad died ten years later when Andrews was in his mid-thirties. He had married Angeline Stevens, and two of their four children had died in infancy. Then Angeline died in 1872. Then his daughter Mary died in 1878 at the age of 17 of tuberculosis. In that very same year, 1878, Andrews' only brother died. When Andrews died in Europe, his mother was there to look out for him, and his sole living child, Charles, was there as well. Charles, thankfully, would end up getting married in Europe the next year and go on to work for the Review for 50 years. Charles Andrews would eventually have a son who would become a missionary to China, so I guess it kind of runs in the blood. Andrews' story really is among the saddest of the Avenist pioneers. It was just a lot of tragedy, a lot of death in one family. His book on the history of the Sabbath has been surpassed, of course, by more recent works. But Andrews was Adventism's first real scholar of a high caliber. His mind was sharp, and his loyalty was unwavering. You just don't replace a guy like that. And it's just too bad. J.N. Andrews' death also marks the end of this 11-year transition period for the church. Since Joseph Bates' death in 1872, 
Until Andrews' death in 1883, we've lost some really irreplaceable leaders in the church. This transition period saw the church expanding at home, going west, and expanding around the world like crazy. But with the death of so many of its pioneers, it meant that some of these younger people had to step up. It brought rapid change, and rapid change would lead to rapid conflict with the surviving members of the old guard. But we're, I think, still a couple of episodes away from that conversation. I don't want to leave you on yet another depressing note, however. Instead, I want to leave you with some festive advice from Ellen White, who took the time to give some Christmas advice from time to time. Naturally, she began by reminding everyone of the gift of Jesus. Giving gifts to each other is fine, she said, so long as we don't forget to give ourselves to God. People obsess over finding the right gift for someone who gave them some sort of favor. How much greater a gift should we give to God, she said. The things we have are money and possessions and opportunities are not to distract us from God, but to remind us of his love for us. Oh, she wrote, I entreat you to profess to love God, to be less self-caring. Center your affections upon Jesus, your Redeemer. Give up all for him. Be willing to make any and every sacrifice to save souls for whom he died. And then, naturally, she mentioned that there were some great books that you can buy right now at great prices. After all, she said, winter has a lot of long days and those are useful for reading. Okay, well, that was a tiny part of her article and by no means the conclusion. Mostly she just encouraged people to focus on what matters, to read things that lead them to Jesus, to commit themselves to the cause... And she even said, let those who desire a Christmas tree make its boughs fruitful with gifts for the needy. It's great to bestow gifts on each other, but make them useful, like books. Hey, did I mention you could get a few from the review right now? Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>